Well, howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here wanting to welcome you to my series on Ruth, The Big Little Love Story. We're going through the Cinderella story of the Old Testament in six weeks with two amazing characters, Ruth, a Moabite gal who was widowed, Boaz, an older, wealthy, affluent, single guy, they fall in love, get a little bad counsel from a gal named Naomi, and God works it all out so they can get married, have a baby named Obed, and through him would come another guy you might've heard about, his name is Jesus. You're gonna love this love story, and I thank you for your prayers, I thank you for your support and your gift of any amount as we get God's word out to God's whole world. Thanks a bunch, Pastor Mark out. All right, if you've got a Bible, go to Ruth chapter two. We're in the great Cinderella love story of the Old Testament. One of the most epic, short love stories, perhaps the best written little love story in the history of the world. And in Ruth chapter two, we're talking about redeeming romance. And what happens is you and I are born and we enter into a culture. And that's the only culture that we will have experienced up until that point. So for us, we assume that's, that's normal. And then we judge everyone and everything else based upon what we perceive to be normal. When it comes to relationships in general, but specifically romantic relationships, the way we do romantic relationships today in our culture, it's it's normal to us, but it's abnormal historically. That's not the way that people have dated or gotten married or done life together. It's not normal globally. Most of the people in the world today don't do their romantic relationships the way that we do in America and in the West. And it's also not normal biblically. And so what we're gonna talk about today is the beginning of this romantic relationship between Ruth and Boaz. And it's a bit of a case study for all of us. So let me try and make this applicable to everyone. So if you are a younger single, let's say you're in your teens or 20s, I want you to think today, what are my convictions about romantic relationships? Should we be dating in junior high? Because that's what all the Disney dramas tell us to do. Is that a good idea or not? For those of you who are little older singles, you're in your 20s or 30s or 40s, is the way that you have been approaching relationships or those that you know are approaching relationships, is that healthy, is that wise, is that good? For those of us that are married or perhaps even divorced, it's a good opportunity to ask, Early on in the relationship, did we have some patterns and precedents in place that led to problems later? Maybe some of the struggles you have today, they were all the way back to the first days. For those who are parents or grandparents, and I'm on the verge of being a dad to four teenage kids, the question is, how are we gonna oversee or inform or instruct or participate in their romantic relationships? And so for all of us, we know people who are single, we love them, we serve them, and sometimes we have an opportunity to speak into their life. And the reason that this story is so timely, the primary three characters are all single. Naomi's an older single woman. She's a mother-in-law who's widowed. You've got Ruth, who is a woman who's probably in her late teens, maybe her 20s. We're not exactly sure, but she's probably not any older than her early 30s. And then you've got Boaz, and all three are single. They're all single. And they serve as a case study for us. And we're gonna see today the transition in their relationship. Up until this point, they've just sort of met one another. And today they sit down for a first meal. And the story really picks up next week where they get a little more romantic time together. I don't wanna give the whole story away, but it raises the issue of how should single people come together and start a romantic relationship? And historically, biblically, culturally, there really are three ways. The first is um, what we will call prearranged marriage. If you look at this like a teeter-totter of a sliding scale, the question is, well, should the parents make the decision? That's prearranged marriage. 
Um, should the individual single person make the decision, that's more modern day dating, or should the parents and the children work together in some sort of balance and equilibrium, making the decision together, that's courtship. Now, when it comes to the issue of prearranged marriage, how many of you are single and that sounds like a terrible idea? Prearranged marriage sounds like a terrible idea if you're single. How many of you are married? And that sounds like a pretty good idea. Your perspective <laughs> changes when you get married. I can remember when I was single, I thought, what a dumb idea. Now that I'm a parent, I'm like, that was brilliant. I just overlooked a few variables. So prearranged marriage is the way it still works in some parts of the world. And this is ultimately where the, the lion's share of responsibility and choice is over on the the side of the parents. And we might look at that and criticize that, but let me just say that the way that romantic relationships, both, both singles whom are together and married couples, the way it's going in our culture, I'm not sure we're in a place to criticize other cultures, amen? It's not like we've really landed the dismount on how men and women should be together and live happily ever after. A friend of mine, he's a pastor in India, and he explained this to me some years ago because he has a prearranged marriage with his wife and they've been together for a very long time. They love each other. I said, explain how it works. He said, well, in America, you choose your love. In India, we love our choice. I thought, okay, I got to think about that for a while. He, he said that the way that it was done in his culture, he felt was better than our culture. You may disagree with that. The second position is one of courtship. And this is more where the parents with the child are making the decision together and the parents are involved in the development of the romantic relationship. What this requires is, you know, godly son or daughter. This requires godly parents. They live in proximity to one another. Maybe it works easier if the young woman is still living with her parents and that the parents and the children have a good, healthy relationship where they can work through differences. Sometimes that's the situation. Sometimes it's not. The way that it works in our culture and is normal is dating. It's dating. It's where two single people just kind of do life together and figure it out and their family and sometimes even their friends aren't really involved in their decision making. Well, that being said, let me give you a little bit of history on dating in our culture. Um, dating in our culture is actually a fairly new phenomenon. The best of my research indicates that dating, that word, was introduced as slang in 1896 for a man paying for an evening out with a woman of the night. So that's where the word comes from. In the early 1900s, people didn't primarily practice what we'll call dating. They practiced something called courting. And this is where a young man is interested in a young woman. So he would go to her parents' house, have dinner with them, spend time with them. And the whole family would get to know the young man. And he would sort of earn the trust of the parents and the siblings and maybe the grandparents and the extended family. So the young woman was part of a loving family and the young man would spend time with that family and get to know her and the whole family together in a relationship. That's how it was primarily practiced in our culture. Well, what happens then in the early 1900s, they create something called women's magazines. Have you seen these? How many have been to the grocery store, read the headlines, and had to call 911, okay? Uh, what happened is women's magazines, ladies' magazines, they started in the early 1900s. The first, I think, was the, the, the Ladies' Home Journal. It immediately went to a, a million subscribers. And all of a sudden, now there's an industry that is telling women, but especially single women, wear these clothes, wear this makeup, do these things, and then single guys will find you interesting, compelling, and attractive. And it creates this whole industry for women that is pushing them for certain behaviors and lifestyle choices that may not be in their best interest. And all of a sudden now there's this economic 
impetus that you need to spend a lot of money to be a certain kind of woman so that a man will ask you out. And then when he does, you sort of owe him some things in return. Well, then what happens is um, in the 1920s, we get urbanization. Cities come into existence. And in the cities, there are gathering points for social life together. So there's restaurants and there's bars and there's movie theaters and there's dance halls. And all of a sudden now, the, the focus of social relationships moves from the home out into the city. Well, then by the 1930s, we get the automobile. And this really changes everything because now people are mobile. And so now a young man would drive to a young woman's home and rather than spending time with her family, he would put the young woman in the car and drive her away from her parents. And now nobody knows exactly what they're doing. And oftentimes it's not reading the Bible and praying together. And so that's, that's where modern day dating begins. By the 1940s then, uh, dating becomes more and more popular. And also what starts to happen at that point is there becomes an economic perspective for young men. They think, well, I, I bought a car, that cost me a lot of money. I went and picked up the young woman and I got dressed up in a nice set of clothes and I took her out to dinner or a movie or a dance or a concert or an event. I spent a lot of money, I paid, I expect her to pay me back. Now there's pressure on women to perform in ways that the Lord would not have them to perform. And then all of a sudden, women are in this competitive situation that culminates with something called the bachelor, which is the Greek word for demon. And uh, it's where all of a sudden, women are competing, trying to outperform one another to get the interest of a young man. And everything then becomes increasingly unhealthy. Well, then by the 1960s, you get the feminist movement, you've got the sexual revolution. 1970s, you've got birth control, you've got no-fault divorce, you've got legalized abortion, and then you and I are born into this world where today the majority of adults 18 and over are single. So the majority of adults are single. Uh, over half of young adults, singles, will cohabitate at some point. Nine in 10 will marry, and the majority of those marriages will end in divorce. And because that's the world that we're born into, that's the world I was born into, we think, well, that's normal. Historically, that's not normal. This is actually all very recent invention. Well, globally, this must be normal. In many cultures, this is not the way they do life. For those of you that are from first and second generation immigrant homes, you know that, that your family is struggling because there is a cultural pressure for the children and the grandchildren to adopt certain values that are not consistent with your cultural convictions. And biblically, this is not necessarily the way that God would have it to be. Why does this all matter? because we're reading a book of the Bible and it's about three single people. This older woman named Naomi, she grew up in Israel. She was one of God's people. She married a guy named Elimelech. Um, a famine hit in literally the place that's called the house of bread. He made some tragic, foolish rather decisions and he moved his family down to Moab during an economic downturn. Um, there, the boys, Malon and Kilion, married two unbelieving, ungodly women. Eventually, the husband died, the two sons died, and here is Naomi left far from God's people in presence, and she has a funeral for her husband and a funeral for each of her sons. She is broken, she is burdened, she is bitter. She determines that she will return to God's people in presence, and she'll return home to Bethlehem after 10 years away. 
She says goodbye to one of her young daughter-in-laws, Orpah. She sends her back to her family and back to her faith, worshiping the pagan god Chemosh, and they have this emotional goodbye. She then is trying to conclude things with her second daughter-in-law, a woman named Ruth. And Ruth says, no, I'm going to leave my mother and father. I'm going to go with you. I want to be with God's people and God's presence. And so she ultimately has a conversion experience. So she becomes a godly new Christian single woman. They make their way all the way up to Bethlehem. And these two women are literally single. They are widowed and they are absolutely impoverished. They are struggling to survive. They're trying to figure out how to literally just get enough food that they don't starve to death. And so what Ruth does, I'm catching you up on the book, she goes out to glean. And so what would happen is there was a provision in the Old Testament that if you had a field and it produced harvest, you would leave the margins for the marginalized. So the poor could come and glean. This was a dignified way for them to get food and sustenance and to sustain their life. So Ruth is gleaning in the fields. This is the equivalent of going to the food bank. This is the equivalent of um, being at a soup kitchen in their day. It's very humbling and, and you do that only if you're in dire circumstances and you really need the help and there's a dignified way to help people. Well, chapter two says that it just so happened that she ended up in the field of a man named Boaz. Of all the fields she could have chosen, God in his providence, like a father with his daughter, just sort of takes her hand and leads her tenderly to this uh, place of Boaz. And, and what we're gonna learn here is that, number one, all relationships that we have should glorify God. And number two, all romantic relationships should be moving toward marriage. And if it can't move toward marriage, then it shouldn't be a romantic relationship. Where we're at today in Ruth chapter two, redeeming romance in chapter two, beginning in verse 14, they have a relationship that is just beginning to turn a little bit toward a romantic relationship. And then next week, if you come back, you'll hear the rest of the story and it picks up the pace. So here's where we begin after my lengthy introduction. Do you understand why it's important to understand relationships? If you don't think about your relationships, especially romantic relationships, you will end up doing what everyone else is doing and you'll end up suffering how everyone else is suffering. And so here's the story of the beginning of their relationship. The first thing we see is God's will. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, so they've been working all day and they're sort of getting a break. And Boaz, this godly, wise, older, you know, strong, capable, competent business leader says to her, this young, vulnerable woman, Ruth, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. So he's seating her at his table. She's a Moabite, he's a Hebrew. He's a man, she's a woman. This is 3000 years ago. By inviting her to his table, he's actually elevating her social status and her dignity. And he's saying she's, she's equal to the rest of us. Even though she is a homeless, impoverished woman, we're gonna treat her like family because she is one of God's daughters. And he is very generous toward her. And she ate until she was satisfied. It's been a while since she's had a really good meal and she had some leftovers. So here's you know, the beginning of the doggy bag and the take home. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So the, the way the law worked was the margins were left for the marginalized. And what Boaz is saying, we're gonna go beyond the law. We're gonna go all the way into grace and generosity. Don't just 
allow her to pick from the edges of the field. Let her get the best of the harvest. In fact, you do some of the work for her and give it to her. This is generosity. Generosity goes above and beyond the requirements of the law and into the realm of grace. So she gleaned in the field until evening. So she's a hard worker working all day. And so you got to see Ruth, lady. She's wearing like a peasant dress. She's all pitted out. Her hair's up in a ponytail. She's just dirty and sweating. It's been a long, hard day in the field. She's got dirt under her fingernails. Then she beat out what she'd gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Um, and she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. So here we see their first meal together, okay? True or false, your first meal together is really important, especially at the beginning of a potential romantic relationship, right? 3,000 years later, uh, let's say, gentlemen, you really like a woman, you take her out to dinner, right? To a place that doesn't have a drive-through with a clown where the food is cooked by a high school kid. You really try and think through how you're going to make this right, right? So you get a shirt with buttons, you go from one to two eyebrows, you have a plan, you know, you, you figure out a real meal, something to enjoy with a young woman. That's, they're not yet in a romantic relationship, but they are kind of working together, doing life together, getting to know one another, and the conversation turns at the dining room table. Um, I'll tell you about Grace and I's first uh, meal together, okay? Um, this is, I think it's a funny story. I don't know if she does. I'll ask her between services. But um, so I really wanted to take Grace out to dinner and get to know her when we were 17 years old in high school. So I gassed up my 1956 Chevy, which was my first car. I sold it. It only had 60,000 original miles. And I sold it because it had four doors and I didn't think it was cool. I didn't have the Holy Spirit or discernment. One of the great griefs of my whole life was selling my 1956 Chevy. Nonetheless, I went to pick up Grace and her parents lived in a cul-de-sac. And so I drove around this cul-de-sac multiple times because I was very, 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 very nervous, 17-year-old young man. And I went inside and I was waiting for Grace and she, I sat there talking to her parents for a long time because she was very, 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 very late. She was late. She was late, and I don't know if she's born late and just hasn't caught up, I don't know what happened. It's been a situation in our marriage. And so we, um, I was waiting, 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 and I thought, gosh, this girl's taking forever. And then she walked out, and I was like, that was totally worth waiting for. So I had to you know, sort of deal with my own, like, you need to be, oh, forget it, you're worth waiting for. So then I took her out to dinner, and we were going out to uh, get a bite to eat, and we got out of my 1956 Chevy, and I had my wallet, and she'd left her purse in the car, and, she's, and we were walking toward the uh, restaurant, and it wasn't like a super fancy one because I was 17, but um, Grace said, oh, no, I need to get my purse. I said, what, what do you need to get your purse for? She said, so I can pay for my dinner. I was like, you're not paying for your dinner. I'm taking you out to dinner. So she went to grab my keys. So here's our first conflict, okay? Um, here's our first conflict. She goes to grab my keys. We're wrestling over my keys. They fall out of my hand down through a storm grate into the sewer. <laughs> I looked at her and she smiled. She looked so cute. She's like, ha ah. I was like, that was my only set of keys. That's the only key I have for my, for my 19, that's the only key I had for my 1956 Chevy. I was like, well, we got to get my key back. So we sort of devised a plan that we would go to the restaurants and the businesses. And I found a flashlight, a long string, and a magnet. Okay, so here's our first date. I'm trying to get to our first dinner. And I am trying to show her my engineering prowess on our first <laughs> evening out. And I get the magnet, boom, right on the key. I kid you not, an aluminum key. 
uh, the magnet will not pick it up. So I call my construction worker dad who comes down with tools. We take the grate off of the city sewer line. My dad crawls down and gets my key. We finally go to dinner and have our first meal together, okay? Um, and, uh, and for us, that, that meal together was really one of the most pivotal moments in my entire life. Um, and I love Grace and, and I enjoy Grace and, and I'm glad to be with her and I'm glad to eat other meals with her and I'm glad I haven't been down the sewer. Actually, one time I did, she dropped her phone. So I've only been down the sewer twice for Grace. But, um, but that being said, when you sit down and eat together, the relationship is in the process of changing, amen? There's people you see at the grocery store, there's people you see at the bank, there's people you see at church, there's people that you see at work. And once you sit down and have a meal together, that's where the relationship starts to really transition. You get to know one another, you have a conversation, it becomes um, less uh, formal and more casual, that's where they are at. So this is the beginning of their transition, but I want you to see that it's in a group, it's with other people. There's not all this intensity and pressure on them and they begin in a way that's actually healthier than, than Grace and I did. But what I want you to see in this relationship as well is that number one, it's God's will that they met. That God brought Ruth from, Beth, from Moab rather all the way to Bethlehem and she decides I need to go out and find some food and glean. She could have ended up in anyone's field she ends up in the field of Boaz. And she ends up in the field of Boaz and she happens to be working when Boaz happens to come to his place of business and he happens to inquire of who she is and he happens to look after her and he happens to invite her to his table and he happens to provide very generously for her and ultimately for her mother-in-law. And I want you to see that there are three kinds of people. There are people who are takers. All they do is take. All they do is take, and it is, I win, you lose, what's mine is mine, what's yours is mine too. That's a taker. Takers make bad friends, they make bad spouses, they make bad employers, they make bad employees. The second kind of people are debtors. If I give to you, you owe me. If I give to you, you owe me. Boaz here is not a debtor. He doesn't say, okay, let's write up a contract, Ruth. I will provide certain things for you, but later on, I need you to pay me back. He's not a debtor. In fact, number three, what he is, he's a giver. He does not owe her all the generosity that he gives her. When we read the ephah, we were like, I don't know what that is. It's about 30 pounds. That's a lot. So if you read the Old Testament, I, at least in my studies, that's about two weeks wages. So Ruth goes out, works really hard for one day and gets two weeks wages. How many of you would love that if your boss said that tomorrow? I've decided for every day of work, I'm gonna give you two weeks wages. That's what he does for Ruth. You know why? Because she has nothing. And Grace wants you to be blessed and to catch up. And so Boaz is gonna give her grace. Law says that she can work for a day and get a day of food or wages. Grace says she can work for a day and get two weeks wages or food. And so he gives her a lot of grace. And so he's a very generous man. And, and, and this is where relationships flourish between people who are generous. Two takers, that's not a healthy relationship, friendship or romantic. A giver and a taker, that actually becomes an abusive relationship. I keep giving, you keep taking. That means you're abusing me. 
where there's two generous givers, that leads to a flourishing, loving, healthy, viable relationship. And so Boaz, we see he's a very generous man. And we see that Ruth is a very generous woman because she gets the two weeks and she goes home and shares it with Naomi. She's generous too. And she understands, okay, this is a gift that I'm to enjoy and to share. And this is to be all of our view of what we'll call stewardship. Everything we have comes from the Lord, just like everything she had came from Boaz. And we are to enjoy it as she enjoyed it and we're to share it as she shared it. Some of you wonder, how can I have better relationships? How can I have better friendships? How can I improve my romantic relationship or my marital relationship? The question is, are you a giver, a taker, or someone who holds a debtor's ethic? Two givers make a wonderful relationship. And this is just the very, very, very beginning of their relationship. But it says a lot about her character because Boaz is generous to her. She doesn't have this sense of entitlement. And then she turns around and she's generous. He gives and she gives. And two givers ultimately are gonna find in love, fall in love rather, and God's gonna give them a great future together. So we see this is the beginning of God's will for their romantic relationship. The next thing we see is God's confirmation of their relationship beginning in chapter two, verse 19. And so she goes home and she gives the food to her mother-in-law and she, I had a great day. You never guess what, you know, Naomi's just mind blown. What? You, you left this morning, you came back, we were starving to death and now, now the fridge is full and the pantry's full and you know, you met Mr. Costco, that's amazing. You know, that's amazing. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? How did this happen? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Do you bless your employer? Do you pray for your employer? Do you speak good of your employer? Do you bless your employer? She does. So she told her mother-in-law whom she had worked for and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Good strong name means strong man. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living nor the dead. She continues, Naomi said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, <clears throat> one of our redeemers, big important word. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. He said, stick around for the next, oh, six, seven, eight weeks. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. We're gonna see here a con conversation and a confirmation. So what happens is Ruth meets Boaz. It's not romantic yet, but it is kind, loving, generous, godly, warm, and healthy. And that's a good place to begin. She then returns home and has this conversation with Naomi. This is the first time we see Ruth speaking in the entire book. And Ruth is asking, where did you go? Who did you meet? How did this happen? Oh, it's this guy, Boaz. And then Naomi says, oh, he's one of our redeemers. Now, the redeemer was the one that if a man died, the redeemer would be the one who was legally responsible for the people and the property of the deceased. Okay. So they didn't have like in our day, lots of prenuptial agreements or legal contracts or wills or social security, or it was just a different cultural expectation 3000 years ago that family takes care of family. So let's say I've got, uh, I've got three boys, two girls in my family. If it was the old covenant, Old Testament, if my brother died and his wife and kids were left, I would have a responsibility um, for the people in his family and the property in his family, making sure everybody was okay. 
And if I was single, I might even consider marrying her and adopting those children and loving that family. So that's what a redeemer would do. He had responsibility for the people and the property of the deceased. Naomi says, oh, he's one of our redeemers. Now, technically, that's not entirely true because Naomi's husband Elimelech was not a brother to Boaz. Boaz is a distant relative, he's not a close relative. So legally, he's not obligated. Additionally, um, Ruth is a Moabite, not a Hebrew, so she doesn't fall under all of the same legal protections. It'd be like if you were in the US on a visa and you weren't yet a full citizen, perhaps not all legal rights would apply to you. That's the status that she finds herself in. So what this means technically is that Boaz doesn't owe her anything, but he gives her everything because he has the heart of God. Furthermore, I don't wanna give it all away, I keep saying that, but you gotta come back. But in the rest of the book, eventually he is going to act as the redeemer and technically he's not obligated. He does this out of love and grace and mercy, not out of duty, law, or obligation. So they're having this confirmation conversation. And let me, um, let me say this, the Bible talks a lot about two or three witnesses. There are times that we think that something is God's will and it may or may not be. So when we believe we know what God's will for our life is, what we need then is God's confirmation. And so there's this underlying theme here of how do you discern God's will? Well, but what Ruth has determined is she believes that it is God's will that she's in Bethlehem and it is God's will that she's at the field of Boaz and that it's God's will that she spend time with the ladies who are part of his business because they're good, godly, safe women, community and relationship. She believes that it is God's will that she stay there for the whole harvest season, which is another six, seven, eight weeks. She believes that it is God's will that she not go elsewhere. And she brings what she believes is God's will to Naomi. And she says, Naomi, I believe this is God's will. What do you think? This is God's confirmation. This is two or three witnesses. Naomi is a believer. Naomi's had a hard life. She's in a painful place, but she loves the Lord enough that she's made the 30 plus mile walk back to God's people in presence, that she is praying, that she does bless Boaz, that she does seek the Lord's favor, even though she's in a broken place. And so this is the closest believing relationship that Ruth has. So she brings what she believes is God's will to receive God's confirmation. Practically for you and I, if we think God might be moving us or it's time to change jobs, or maybe this is someone I should pursue romantically if I'm single or we're married and it's the time to start our children or to buy this home or to make this decision or to downsize in this way, whatever the major life decision we make, the first thing we've got to ask is, Lord, what's your will? And we've got to seek God's will and look for God's hand of providential provision. And then if we believe that we know what God's will is, then the question is, who do we go talk to for confirmation? You understand that? That's wise counsel. Grace and I have wise counsel in our life. There are women that we both agree are safe. There are men that we both agree are safe. There are couples that we both agree are safe. And when we need to make major decisions, these are the people that we go talk to to seek counsel from. We all need that. How many of you have thought something was God's will and you went with it and you realized, I think I got that wrong. This is where confirmation helps to determine whether or not it was God's will or we made a mistake. It's wise counsel. So 
the relationship is forming and beginning, and now Naomi is being invited in to have you know, a voice into Ruth's life. For those of you who are single, I think this is a really important example. You meet somebody, now you bring wise counsel in to have a voice and to help determine whether or not this is God's will and confirm whether or not this is God's leading. And so then the story continues with uh, God's timing in uh, Ruth chapter two, beginning in verse uh, 23. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz. Community, relationship, friendship. Community, relationship, friendship. Gleaning until the end of barley and wheat harvest, that's six, seven, or eight weeks, and she lived with her mother-in-law. What happened during that, let's say, two-month time period? Very little. There, there's no romantic report. There's no, oh, and they texted every day, and they exchanged numbers and flowers, and you know, they, you know, they moved in together, and they got an apartment, and stopped going to church. Doesn't say any of that, right? What it says is, they met, they had a meal together, they kind of enjoyed one another's company, and they gave it some time. And he went to work, and she went to work, and he lived his life, and she lived her life. And he hung out with his godly guy friends, and she hung out with her godly gal friends. I want you to see three things in this. There's God's will. It's God's will that they bump into each other. That's God's providence. There's God's confirmation. Naomi says, stay there. And then the third thing is, there's God's timing. There's God's timing. One of the great refrains in the great love story of the Old Testament, the Song of Solomon is, do not arouse or awaken love until it's time. It's God's timing matters as well. God's timing matters as well. So we need to know what God's will is. We need to have that confirmed by wise counsel. And then we need to wait for God's timing. Now, this is true in our romantic relationships, but it's true in all of our life's decisions. How many of you, don't raise your hand because it's kind of embarrassing, but you, you, you thought it was God's will, but you really kind of got ahead of God's timing in a romantic relationship. You pushed it. You got too emotionally involved, too physically involved, too spiritually involved. You moved too fast. And it may or may not have been God's will, but definitely it wasn't God's timing, and that was a problem. I'll never forget, I was dealing with a young woman some years ago. She was single, wanted to be married, have kids. True or false, those are good desires. Get married, be a mom, have kids, good desires. True, she kept meeting nice guys, and then the relationship would end very suddenly, and she'd be very heartbroken. So I said, Pastor Mark, can I talk to you about this? I said, yes, I kid you not, we sat down. I said, well, tell me about the first date. She said, well, I ask him how many kids they want. I'm like, well, that's a little early. That's a little early, you know, because the guy's just like, wait a minute. You know, I, I'm not ready to pay for private school for five kids yet. We haven't even gotten our water, you know. We're just, we just sat down, right? She's all about the finish line. Like, you know, our third kid will be named Naomi, right? He's like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't even got my cheese sticks yet. We just sat down. You know, it's first date. You're, you're pushing me too fast. And, and what sometimes happens in relationships, we push too fast, and as a result, others push back or they feel pushed away. And what she does, she's not pushing, she's patient. She's not chasing Boaz, right? She's not every day coming home to Naomi having yet another nervous breakdown. He didn't show up today, he didn't text, he didn't call. I didn't get to dip my bread in the wine like I did on the first date. They aren't having that conversation. They're just giving it some time, letting it sort of work itself out in God's timing. Do you get that? For all of you, for your decision-making, this is really important case study. What's God's will? 
Who do you trust to confirm God's will? And are you patiently awaiting God's timing? God's timing. And so they wait for all of these weeks together. And the next week, the story really changes. Now, um, for those of you who are single, or as I said, your parents or grandparents of those who are single, or your friends or family members are single, uh, those of you who are single, you're often encouraged when you're thinking about potentially finding a romantic relationship to make a what? To make a list. How many of you have been told this? Make a list of what you're looking for. How many of you are married and you realize that's ridiculous, okay? Boaz does not have this list. Um, Moabite, non-Hebrew, grew up worshiping a demon god from a family that practices incest and is widowed and homeless at the food bank with a bitter mother-in-law that tags along as a group on two for one. That, I, I assure you, whatever Boaz's list is, that's not his list. He's not going through Hebrew harmony and you know, click, 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 trying to figure out, oh, where's the broke, homeless, formerly demon worshiping? Oh, and a bitter mother-in-law, Shazam, we landed the dismount, all of the things on my list. Okay, what happens is when you are single, you make a list of, of what you want to marry. And, and let me say this, if you're gonna make a list as a single person for what you want from them, you should make another list for what you want from you. We tend to make a list of you need to be this, we should instead make a list of I want to be that. She doesn't fit his ideal list, right? How many of you guys would say, yeah, that's not my ideal woman? Homeless, bitter, mother-in-law, tagging along, not ideal. But if Boaz had on his list, loves the Lord, has great faith, will do anything to be with God's people and in God's presence, is a faithful friend when times are down and those around her like Naomi can be dependent upon her because she is resilient hardworking, very humble, very respectful, very honorable, very integrous. If he put those character traits on his list, would Ruth have made the list? Yes, yes. Now, she may not have made the list of what he thought he wanted, but ultimately, if he went with character alone, she would have met all the requirements on the list of what he actually needed. This is where God looks at the heart and people look at the outward. Her character is such that they actually will make a great relationship because here's what they don't have in common, the same race. And that was a big deal. Moabites and Hebrews, you weren't supposed to be together, but she converted and met the God of the Bible, so that changed everything. They're not from the same race, they're not from the same region. She's from Moab, he's from Bethlehem, that's very different. They're not from the same religious background. She grew up in a crazy false religion and then converted to the God of the Bible. Furthermore, they're not from the same social class. He's a wealthy business owner. She, she's a, a homeless peasant girl. But their character is similar. 
They both love the Lord. They both work hard. They're both generous givers. They both treat one another with holiness and with respect. He has good men that he's in relationship with. She has good women that she's in relationship with. He is obviously wise. She is seeking wise counsel. They're waiting on God's timing. They're not pushing anything. They're not physically, emotionally, or spiritually awakening love too prematurely. They're waiting for God's timing. Do you see that? So ultimately, it's really important that you and I have some understanding of how we want our romantic relationships to work. And one of the great things that has happened that is so tragic is that people don't have any concept of how it should work. And then they get into the relationship and then sin or folly or, or impatience or, 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 or ungodliness creeps in. And then it leads to a lot of heartache and pain. And so for those of us who are married or perhaps have been married, looking back and asking, hmm, was, was I walking in God's will? Was I seeking wise counsel and waiting on God's timing? For those of you who are single, to ask those same questions, because Boaz and Ruth is gonna be a story that ends well, and oftentimes the way that relationships work themselves out in our culture, it doesn't end well at all. And as a, as a father of teenagers, and particularly two daughters, the amount of abuse that happens to young women in our culture is just indicative that our relationships, particularly those who are, that are romantic, there's just something inherently flawed and wrong with how we encourage people to meet and to grow in some sort of romantic relationship together. But we see this beautiful picture, we see this great case study, this amazing example with Ruth and Boaz. And I wanna lift up Boaz for all the men and I wanna lift up Ruth for all the women and say they're not perfect, but they're exemplary and they are so countercultural to everything we see in our culture, right? In our culture it would be Boaz was very rich, Ruth was very poor, so he used that to his advantage and then had her be one of the gals that he was running around with, committing to none of them, using and abusing all of them, and that's not the story of Ruth at all. That's not the story of Ruth at all. And we've titled this series, A Big Little Love Story, because this love story that is emerging between Ruth and Boaz, and it really picks up the pace next week, it's, it's a little love story that's part of a big love story. It's a little love story that's part of a big love story. And the big love story is the story of the whole Bible of which this story is one of the stories in that big story. And the story of the Bible is that Jesus Christ is like our Boaz and that we all are like Ruth. We come from the wrong family. She came from the family of Lot and incest. We come from the family line of Adam and sin that she grew up very spiritually confused and we all start very spiritually confused that she ultimately comes to Boaz with her hands empty and she needs his grace to provide. We come to the Lord Jesus, spiritually speaking, with our hands empty, asking for his grace to provide. That Boaz spoke to her and Jesus speaks to us, that Boaz protected her and Jesus protects us. That Boaz provided for her and Jesus provides for us. That Boaz put her in community with God's people and Jesus puts us in community as God's people. And what's interesting is that the whole relationship takes a turn at the table. And the story of the Bible is really one where relationships take a turn at the table. Uh, the problem started in Genesis 3 where our first parents ate with Satan. They partook of forbidden fruit and they ate a meal with their enemy. And as a result, they joined an unholy alliance with him. 
The story of the Bible then continues that God institutes something called the Passover, where God's people would get together and they would break bread and sit and they would eat together in God's presence, awaiting the coming of Jesus who would die in their place for their sins to reconcile their relationship with God. There were other feasts and festivals where relationships would turn at the table. This all goes to the point of the Lord Jesus. Here comes our glorious Boaz into human history. And what he does is he eats what's called the Last Supper with his disciples. It's actually the Passover meal. Just like Ruth and Boaz sat down, so Jesus sits down with his disciples and they partake of the Last Supper. And he says, you know, this, this bread that we eat, it's to symbolize and to signify my body, which will be broken for you. And this, this wine that we drink, it is to symbolize and to show my blood that will be shed for you. When you eat of this, you know, do this in remembrance of me. And he institutes what we would call communion, something that we'll practice right now in a moment, and something that we also practice in our life groups as we sit down and we have a meal together. If you don't know this, I teach the Bible on Sundays, and then we have life groups that discuss God's word during the week, and those life groups tend to start with a meal. Why? Because relationships turn at the table. That we either eat with God's people or we eat with those who are not God's people in hopes that they become God's people, that we either eat with God's presence or we eat with God's enemy. And that's exactly what happened with our first parents and the fall in the garden was sitting and eating and having a meal with the enemy. And Jesus comes and he has a meal and he tells his friends, I'm gonna die to forgive everyone's sin so that they can enter into relationship with me. Well, we know the rest of the story. Jesus dies in our place for our sins. He pays our debt. He's our great Boaz. He, he makes us rich out of his spiritual account. He rises, conquers Satan's sin, death, hell, the wrath of God. And what's one of the first things the Lord Jesus does after he rises from death? Do you remember? He goes out with his friends and he has breakfast because relationships turn at the table. And then he ascends into heaven. And what's he doing right now? What's Jesus doing right now? He's preparing a meal. Revelation 19 talks about at the end of time, the dead will rise, God's people will be in God's presence forever, and that Jesus has got, this picture is given of this massive banqueting table. Isaiah says he'll have the choicest of meats and the finest of wines, amen? Okay, well I thought you'd get more excited, but it sounds good to me, I'm looking forward to it. Um, what's nice as well is that Jesus invites us to sit at his table, just like Boaz invited Ruth. And, and just as Boaz was very generous to Ruth, Jesus will be very generous with us. Just as she came with nothing, we come with nothing. And just as he provided everything, Jesus provides everything. And the story of eternity is that, is that heaven is not just us sitting on clouds, wearing diapers, plinking harps with small wings that are incapable of really transporting us to anywhere more entertaining that the story of the kingdom of God is that we get resurrected bodies, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, the world as God intended it, that literally all of creation becomes Jesus, just as these fields belong to Boaz, that everyone there will bless him as Boaz's employees blessed him, and that people will sit down together in peace and in harmony and love across racial and economic and previous religious divides as they've all come to know, love, serve, and worship Jesus, the God of the Bible. And then this huge meal will be laid out and heaven is a party where we sit at Jesus' table and we have a lot of fun celebrating his grace and feasting together forever. 
And so relationships turn at the table and ultimately all of human history is pointing and in the direction of ultimately a party at the end where God's people are together in God's presence, singing God's praises and feasting together forever. And so what we see here at this moment with Ruth and Boaz, it's, it's a little love story that's a picture of a big love story. Do you get that? So I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna sing and celebrate because we have a God who is like Boaz. He comes for us, he loves us, he calls out to us, he blesses us, he provides for us, he forgives us, he esteems us, he raises our dignity, he seats us at his table, he treats us as friends, he blesses us, he cares for us, he provides for us, he comforts us. And then we're gonna partake of communion as we remember relationships turn at the table. And as we partake, we remember that Jesus is the one who is preparing for us a feast in his presence forever, amen? All right, let me pray. Father, thanks for an opportunity to study this little love story in light of your big love story, the story of Jesus' love for his people, the church, his bride. Lord God, we thank you that Jesus is the greater Boaz. And we thank you that we are in the position of Ruth that as she found herself in his presence, so Lord God, you have brought Jesus to be your presence among us. Lord, I pray for my friends here who are not yet Christian, that they would realize that, that they need you and that ultimately all of history is about Jesus. Lord, I pray for those who are single, whether they're young or old, that Lord God, they would think of all of their relationships but especially their romantic relationships in light of the revelation of the teaching of the word of God. I pray for those of us, Lord God, who are mothers and fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers, that as we have an opportunity to love and to encourage and to direct and instruct and correct, that we would help oversee those relationships and those romantic relationships, not that we would control, but that we would inform and instruct and that we would direct through influence and love and care. God, I pray for the singles in our church. Lord, they live under an intense cultural pressure to behave in ways that are not only ungodly, they're also unhelpful. It leads to a lot of heartache and heartbreak, a lot of grief, a lot of shed tears, a lot of remorse and a lot of regret. And Lord God, I confess that Grace and I started off doing things in a way that was worldly and not godly. And I thank you for your forgiveness and I thank you for your grace and I thank you for your fresh start, new beginnings and your provision. And Lord, as we come to worship now, we come to sing of your praises, we come to be part of the big love story, as we come to partake of communion, we prepare ourselves for eternity, where Lord Jesus, we will sit at your table as Ruth sat at Boaz's table, that we will be provided for as she was provided for, and that we will sing your praises because you've only been good to us. And so we come now to respond in Jesus' good name, amen.